Welcome to the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski. I'm an author, speaker, and all-around self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that'll inspire you to love yourself. Hey, self-lovers. Before we dive into today's podcast episode, I want to make sure you know about my two books on self-love. If you're struggling with body image or self-acceptance, then I highly recommend you check out my first book, The Gift of Self-Love. It's a comprehensive workbook to help you build confidence, recognize your worth, and learn to love who you are. You can get it wherever books are sold by searching for The Gift of Self-Love or go to my website, maryscupoftea.com book. Thousands of you have read and dove in into The Gift of Self-Love. The reviews are just incredible. So many five-star reviews, and I'm so forever grateful that it has touched your lives in such a big way. After publishing The Gift of Self-Love and reading all your positive feedback, I noticed that many of you asked me for a tool that would help you build a daily practice of self-love into your life, which is why I decided to create a new self-love journal, 100 Days of Self-Love. It's got 100 journaling prompts that cover all areas of life, body, identity, purpose, relationships, emotions, and more. So you can think of this as a metaphorical multivitamin for self-love. You can get the journal wherever books are sold as well by searching for 100 Days of Self-Love or go to maryscupoftea.com slash journal. These two books, The Gift of Self-Love, The Workbook, And 100 Days of Self-Love, the journal, are complementary to one another, so the content does not overlap. It just depends on what you want or need at this point in your life. It's my mission to share all the self-love tools with you, so I hope that both my books and this podcast can help you do just that. Hello, Dr. Tanea. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for making it work. We have a 12 and a half hour time difference. So right now it's almost 8 p.m. And for you, I think it's almost 9 a.m., right? It's 8 (laughs) a.m. I love time. It's so cool that we could connect. And I'm so glad that I found you on Instagram, your account at Dr. Cuterus. I have to know how that Instagram handle came to be. Oh, it's an embarrassing story. There was one too many beers at a pub. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously? Honestly. So originally my account was called Uterosaurus Rex because the Tyrannosaurus <laughs> is my favorite dinosaur. And I was like, yeah, this fits. And then I realized people can't spell that correctly. <laughs> <laughs> wait, I have died. It was, wait, Uterosaurus Rex? Yes. <laughs> That is so fantastic. (laughs) But for uh, logistical and spelling related reasons, I had to rebrand myself as Dr. Cuteris. And I feel like that was my lucky name. (laughs) Well, is Cuteris like, is that a wordplay on clitoris? Am I missing something? So my idea is that, you know, the uterus is normally looked at with a very, I don't know, it's looked at with disdain for some reason, you know, it's like a dirty place and you need to detoxify the womb or whatever. And it's actually our very first home. That's the very first home we all start our journey from. And homes are cute and cozy, right? So I thought, okay, it's a cute place and it's a uterus. So it's a cuterus. And that's how it was born. <laughs> Wait, I'm so embarrassed to admit that I didn't realize that right away. And it's actually been keeping me up at night. No, I love that. I love that. It's also a wordplay on clitoris. And thank you for pointing that out. I will also add that (laughs) to my spiel from now. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, I love that. No, seriously, like we connected what three or four months ago. And ever since I'm like, hmm, I wonder why she calls herself Dr. Cuterus. <laughs> and I'm so glad we had this talk because I feel completely silly that I didn't see that uterus was so blatantly in there. But anywho, you say that you're on a mission to help people love and understand their bodies, which we're all about on this podcast. And before we dive into some mistakes that vagina owners are making, I want to know a little bit about you and what first sparked your passion for medicine, specifically reproductive health? Uh, It's a very boring journey, honestly. My parents are doctors. They're fertility doctors. I didn't think of becoming anything else. (laughs) I woke up one day and I was like, oh, I'm going to be a fertility doctor. (laughs) And then I went to medical school, really enjoyed the process. So I did my medical school in India. And I went in with the straight mindset that, you know, I'm going to go into medical school, then train as a gynecologist, then train as a fertility doctor, and that's going to be it. But then I really also wanted to study like science and do a little bit of research. And how it's different in India and the US is that we don't do a pre-med program. We go into medical school straight out of finishing school. So I was 17 when I went to medical school and I feel like I didn't get any opportunity to do any research and things like that. So really wanted to do that, applied at Oxford, somehow managed to get in. Had a ball of a time, but my biggest realization walking away from my master's in fertility treatments. So like how you do IVF, how you do ICSIs, things like that. That's what I was trained to do. I learned that a lot of infertility and subfertility and fertility issues in general are related to just not knowing enough about the body. You know, if people were told basic things, they would have been able to take better healthcare decisions early on in life. And that's kind of where my interest in sexual education, body literacy developed, worked towards getting my license to practice as a doctor in the UK. And then the pandemic hit. (laughs) So I thought I'm sitting at home, I might as well do something interesting with my time. Because clearly, there's nothing I can do other than, you know, my requisite duty at the hospital. And because I was working in a fertility center, I didn't have like the scary COVID duties that most doctors did. Yeah, I started this on a whim a year before the pandemic. But then in the pandemic, I was like, I might as well do something with this and started posting content. Now it's my whole life. (laughs) Wow. Okay. That is definitely not a boring story. I don't know why you said that because that is the most interesting story ever. I can't believe, well, a few different things. I actually didn't know about your background in fertility. And that's something that I'm currently very interested in because I'm speaking with my partner about having kids and what that would look like in terms of like body preparation and a lot of things that I don't know. Just like you said, there is so much that I don't know, so much that we have not been taught. And I also cannot believe that you blew up to over a million followers just in the past few years. Thank you. It it is quite surreal when I think about it. And it's also very telling of the kind of information gap we have. Mm -hmm. But yeah, exciting times. And oh, good luck with the pregnancy part. It's so exciting. Oh, thank you so much. I'm about to tell you a bunch of stories about my vagina. So hopefully by the end of this, I will be prepared to, well, know my body and (laughs) be pregnant maybe. And hopefully like raise kids to know their bodies too, because I really do believe that it starts early on. (laughs) Woohoo! Let me get into this. This is such a mysterious thing 
that's been going on with my vagina or vulva. And it's in relation to my menstrual cup. Mm-hmm. Backstory, about three years ago, maybe four years ago, I found the menstrual cup. I loved it, obsessed with it. It worked so well for me, never leaked, nothing. I even slept naked. I love the menstrual cup so much. I partnered with a menstrual cup company on social media. I was like screaming about it from the rooftops. And then, I shit you not, two years ago, one day it just stopped working for me. And what I mean by that is like all the blood just spills out. Nothing is captured in the cup. Everything just goes everywhere. It's like a crime scene. And the thing that's bothering me the most is that I have no idea why. And I tried using the same cup. I tried switching cups. I actually tried switching cups twice. I've used different kinds. I've done insertion techniques. I've reached out to customer service of the (laughs) manufacturers trying to figure out like maybe it's the cup. Is it my body? And then in doing some research... I guess this is like one basic fact that universally is so difficult to accept that bodies change and your pelvic floor changes and the muscles down there change. And I'm totally good with that, except I'm 24 years old and like I haven't given birth and nothing really that dramatic has happened. So any ideas as to why a period cup just stopped working for me overnight? First of all, I'm very sorry to hear that because cups are a game changer. And like you mentioned, once you start using them, you fall in love. Yes. And it's so upsetting that I can't use it anymore. Oh, no. What a shame. (laughs) Very honestly, it's hard to really predict what might have happened without an internal examination. And that's like my answer for most things. But objectively, if I were to think out loud, there could be a bunch of things like you mentioned, hey, you know, bodies change, we adapt differently, our pelvic floor changes differently. And the thing that is very important to remember is that our hormones have a huge effect on our muscles, especially the muscles of the pelvic floor. So if you've had any change in medication and change in birth control, it can affect how your pelvic floor behaves. There can be exercises, there can be, what do you call it, the Oh God, I'm forgetting the word. When something is in a knot, there's an English word for it. And I, I can remember the Hindi word right now. <laughs> but, mm. you know, when like when your muscles are in a knot. Yeah, when it's kind of tense. So different things can happen. Another very common reason that we tend to miss out on is that when most people start using a cup, they go with a soft one. And a mm. soft cup is a little bit more moldable. So it's easier to insert. It is less I don't know you feel it less very honestly Mm -hmm. and eventually you're able to understand how to use a cup you're getting more comfortable with it sometimes our body just like okay bye I need something new (laughs) where you need something (laughs) more firm and firm cups are usually very very helpful for a lot of people another couple of things that can be helpful is the way your cervix sits in your body changes your cervix is not a stationary part of the pelvis for context the uterus has a bottom part that's the cervix that's where all of the blood exits out from that's also the part that dilates when somebody's having a child vaginally so the cervix according to unfortunately a lot of sad messaging where people tell you to measure your cervix to find out the right size for your cup it's not as easy as that because the cervix is a mobile organ how i like to think of it is that The pelvic floor is a hammock and the cervix is a dude chilling on it. So the hammock moves and so does the pelvic floor. 
and so does the cervix which means sometimes your cervix is high sometimes it's low sometimes it's tilted so different kinds of things can happen so maybe your cervix has developed a little bit of a tilt which is why the suction is not forming properly where you can try tilted cups or z shaped cups you know this my god the library of menstrual cups is so large now <laughs> Yeah, it's quite amazing because I feel like it's just such a better option than the waste of pads and tampons, although those are necessary for some people. But can we just back up? Why are you so funny? So the uterus is a hammock and the cervix is a dude chilling on it. (laughs) So the pelvic floor and the ligaments that sort of attach the uterus to the pelvis are the hammock. And the cervix is a dude chilling on it. It's the best way to remember. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And your cervix moves. So like some of the stuff I was reading online about like sticking your fingers up there and seeing if your cervix sits like high, medium or low, that's not necessarily the best approach. So high cervix is definitely a thing, especially if you've had any pelvic surgery or if you've had a cesarean section. But low and medium cervix, the way they describe it, If you're able to insert your finger and feel your cervix up to one knuckle, there's two things that's happening. Either you're not feeling your cervix and you're feeling something else, which is the more likely scenario, or that your cervix is actually so low that you can really feel it with one knuckle or two knuckle deep. And in that case, I would suspect either it's a pelvic organ prolapse or it could be something called a congenitally elongated cervix, which means you're born with a longer cervix. In which case, I would see a doctor before I start using a cup. Hmm. Okay. I have so many questions. So you can't that easily determine it because, like you said, there could be just lots of mistakes. Like you could be feeling something that's not your cervix. So (laughs) this just gives me flashbacks to like a dude fingering me and being like, oh my God, I felt your cervix. That might not be the case, right? Uh, You could if you're going in really deep. I mean, most cervix, you have to go in at least the depth of your middle finger for most vaginas to be able to feel the cervix. And I have very small hands, so I have to go like really deep for me to be able to feel my patient's cervixes. Services? Services? What is the right one? Oh, I should know this. <laughs> I don't know. I would say cervi, like cacti, <laughs> but that's probably not right. Who knows? Either way. A lot of people, what one thing they definitely feel is that, you know, during penetration, if you're feeling pain, a lot of times it's just the cervix being hit because the cervix has pressure receptors on it. Mm. So if you're going in really deep, yeah, you can feel it, but you have to go in really deep. It's not like out there because if it were out there, there's no way somebody would be able to have sex because you would have to have a penis the size of one knuckle to be able to have Mm. sex without pain in that case. So. You mentioned with like my period cup fiasco that a lot of things can change down there. It could also be the firmness of the cup that's not working for me anymore. It could be the shape or the tilt. So there's ways I can experiment and I don't necessarily have to give up, right? No, you don't have to give up. But also, I also want to add a small addendum that the cup is not the answer for everybody and it can change and thankfully we live in the era of so many different kinds of menstrual products that there's something you can definitely find for yourself however because the cup has worked for you keep trying and I'm sure you will find something okay I will do that 
On that note, I'm going to take my dramatic sip of tea. (sighs) Big heart tea, that is. My favorite certified organic tea with direct trade ingredients, wrapped in packaging made from plants, not plastics, and produced with the utmost regard for the farmers who grow it. I love big heart tea, and I've been drinking their tea well before they sponsored the show. Because their company is female-founded, intentionally sourced, and mission-driven, which you can really taste with every sip. I'm currently drinking their Cup of Love tea. It's literally called Cup of Love. How fitting. And I also love their herbal blends for the afternoons. Stock up on your own tea by going to BigHeartTea.com and use code MARY20 for a discount. That's BigHeartTea.com and the coupon code is MARY20. Now back to the show. One thing I want to ask you that my mom mentioned when I shared all of this with her is that she read somewhere that menstrual cups can cause prolapse. True or false? Mm, I would say false, mostly, because the technique is really important. So when you take out your cup, I feel like everybody has heard this, that you you find the base of the cup and then pinch. So what the pinching does is it releases any vacuum because that's how the cup sits inside your body. It forms a vacuum seal around your cervix and that's how it fits there. So if you're pulling out, imagine just sticking a vacuum cleaner inside your vag and like pulling stuff out. That's essentially what's happening when you do that. (laughs) I'm sorry, you're so funny. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So you want to avoid that, of course. And If you are putting that kind of unnecessary pressure on the ligaments and muscles of your pelvic floor, yes, it can cause weakening of the pelvic floor, not dramatically going to lead to a prolapse right away, which is why just the technique really, really matters. Okay. And there's been no like solid reported case of menstrual cups causing prolapse other than a very inflammatory daily male headline. Mm. So as long as we're putting it in correctly and taking it out correctly, we should be good. Yes. Okay. And can I ask you, so as you're speaking, I'm thinking about like what could have possibly changed in my body. And the only thing I can think of is that the past two years, I have gotten really into yoga and my favorite yoga teacher loves pelvic floor strengthening exercises. So things like back bends and things that kind of have you like thrusting upward and like using those muscles there. And now that I'm thinking about it, it's the only correlation. And of course, correlation doesn't mean causation, but it's the only thing I can think of of like, maybe I got stronger down there. I still don't understand why that would make the cup not work for me, but like maybe it just contributed to some muscular changes that warrant a new cup or technique or all of the other things you listed that could very much be a thing because as somebody who's also newly really into yoga very funny i come from india i should know yoga and somehow it was moving to america that got me into yoga (laughs) 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 but the way you hold tension in your pelvic floor changes so the just how tense your pelvic floor is it changes that could be one of the things for sure as women we often are very tense in the pelvic region, which might be one of the things that may have changed. But thank you for bringing correlation is not causation into the picture because that's a really, really important point. It could be a hundred different things, but if this is one thing you're noticing, what you can definitely 
switch up and change is maybe get a firmer cup and maybe get a larger diameter cup. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to try that. And like you said at the beginning, hormones can also change. And again, so many things could be contributing it. So speaking of cups and inserting things, true or false? Do vaginas stretch or get loose if you have a lot of sex? I actually had somebody DM me about this. I don't know why, but it was about a month ago. And somebody in my DMs just like insisted that you can get loose. And I think that's not true, or at least it doesn't just happen overnight like that. So what's the deal there? This is like saying your stomach will get loose if you have too much food. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So that cannot happen. That's not how the vagina operates. The vagina is an elastic organ. It expands and relaxes. And if somebody is turned on, their vagina will expand because, you know, it's trying to make space for a penis. And I don't want to go down the heteronormative route, but, you know, that's the way your body is thinking physiologically. And it's just trying to make space. So when somebody is turned on, their vagina does relax. And then here's the fun part. It goes back to how it was. It doesn't just stay like an open sock throughout <laughs> you know, your life. Sex sex doesn't affect how tight or how loose your vagina is, unless, of course, you're turned on, which is a different thing. And you want to be more relaxed because if you're really tight down there, it's going to hurt and nobody likes that. Unless you're into that, in which case, good for you, but just be careful. <laughs> and like, Vaginas don't become loose from having too much sex because if that were the case, then penises should shrink from having too much sex. And that does not happen. So, Wait, I think you just changed my life. <laughs> that's, that's the new comeback. That's the new rebuttal. That's another example of how our language is shaped by our patriarchal reality. Mm-hmm. Just like the stupid shit we say, it's stupid shit. <laughs> Extremely stupid shit. (laughs) Okay, and what about like after giving birth? How does the vagina change? That definitely can have an effect on the vagina because there's so much, excuse me for saying this, but tearing that happens, you know, I think it's a very graphic word when you use that with the vagina. But there can be injuries, there can be tearing, not just on like a macroscopic level but also on the microscopic level there's so much structural changes that are happening during childbirth because a baby's head is not small (laughs) so it can affect how your vagina feels and how quote-unquote tight or loose it is but it's not something that's as dramatic as some people make it out to be if it is really really bad then it could lead to a pelvic organ prolapse which means that if a vagina is really loose there would be like actual physical manifestations of it outside of sex so i wouldn't stay so stuck to that thought what do you mean by there would be physical manifestations of it outside of sex like you mean it wouldn't just be you know vagina feeling loose during sex there would be actual problems that you would notice outside of the bedroom absolutely would have something like a prolapse where you know you're inserting your finger and you're really feeling your cervix or you could have repeated UTIs like the most common description of a prolapse is when people say it feels like something is coming out of my body Mm. so especially when you're going to pee and things like that you can actually feel a heaviness or a dragging sensation in the pelvis it wouldn't just be that oh I'm having sex my vagina must be loose because it feels different 
the vagina is elastic once again and there's a lot of healing in there and the healing ability in there which means it goes back to how it was but yes childbirth and aging are the only two things that actually really impact it not a penis mm. Oh, Dr. Tania, before I, we get into some things about sex and orgasms, I just want to put this out there that even as we're speaking about this topic, like even when we were talking about menstrual cups, something that I've done before, although my first time like putting in a menstrual cup, I was literally shaking. And the thought of experimenting with one of those discs, like I've tried it and I almost threw up and passed out. And when we're talking about this kind of stuff, like I know you use the graphic word tearing, but that's an extreme example. But even like the little things of talking about reproductive health just sends me into a spiral of medical anxiety And I'm wondering if that's normal or common. I recently had a pap smear and literally had six office members holding my hand and petting my head, telling me it's going to be okay. And it doesn't hurt. It's just something happens in my mind that I just freak the fuck out. Why is that? Oh, man, I'm so sorry. This is unfortunately really very common. And there's so many things that go on behind it. It's ugly stuff like, we just conditioned to prevent sexual assault all of the time. So anything that happens, unfortunately, you know, as we're growing up, we just so strongly conditioned that you have to protect yourself from being assaulted, that anything that's happening in and around the vagina is just anxiety inducing for most people. And then also on top, unfortunately, the way we've treated women's health historically has been very misogynistic, unfortunately. There's no other way to put it. And even now, there's so much we need to do to make things better. but. Of course, that's going to lead to anxiety and just not feeling very comfortable around the whole idea. And on top of all of this, we have the cherry on top of this giant cake of just sad crap is that we don't tell people about their bodies. So most people don't even know that they don't pee from their vagina. And that, of course, is going to lead to anxiety because if you don't know things and something that you've been always told to, you know, as a remnant of purity culture you've always been told to protect that part of your body or as a remnant of just training to prevent assault it's ingrained inside you to make sure nothing's happening down there and then of course you don't know anything about it so it just leads to such bad anxiety for so many people that it's just a wake-up call for like doctors and people like me where we we need to do better we need to make changes and we need to fix stuff that we've done in the past. Mm, your response is making me a little bit emotional just the perspective shift of like this anxiety is my body trying to protect me from a potential assault. I did not know that that's what could be happening because like the metal clamp thing that they put in there and it's cold and the office is always just strange. I I don't know if this is a common experience, but my OBGYN's office has pictures of children, specifically white children, all over the clinic. And I asked about them and she's like, oh, it's it's just a joke. Like they're not our kids. And I'm like, well, why is there no racial diversity? Or like, why should I be looking at babies as I'm getting a pap smear? Like, what if I'm getting an abortion? What if I don't want to be like so many things? And this is like a clinic with like top-notch reviews here in the States. Like you'd think it would be just more warm and welcoming and the staff was wonderful so i'm not like shitting on them by any means but like you said the whole experience 
over generations of how reproductive health, specifically for vagina owners, has been approached is just not great. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's just sad and so much we need to do to fix that. Do you have any tips for calming that medical anxiety, perhaps in the moment? Because as I'm looking to get pregnant, I feel like I'm ready in terms of like children and the love I have to give them. But the thought of being pregnant and giving birth and going to these appointments, it just sends me. And it's the number one barrier that's making me anxious. Like most of my anxiety comes from these kinds of thoughts. Isn't that wild? And this is like a very recent thing. And that's so natural though. It's so natural. I mean, with all of my training, I'm still afraid of childbirth and I think I always will be. (laughs) But I think one thing that's really helpful is learning. Just understanding what's going to happen and what are the things to expect and what ideas you have. It's also really helpful to discuss these things with your doctor, letting them know that these are the particular things that make you anxious. Again, I do know that certain doctors are dismissive of that sort of concern. So you can find somebody who supports you with your emotional, physical needs in a doctor. I know personally that a lot of my patients really enjoy watching videos of surgeries as long as there's no cutting happening. You know, they they like to see inside that, okay, this is what your organs look like. And say, for example, if you're doing a procedure like a hysteroscopy, where we insert a camera into the uterus to take a look inside, as long as we don't show them the insertion part and you actually show them the inside part and show them that, okay, this is what we're looking at. And this is what we want to see. And we want to see how the uterus looks like on the inside. Is it healthy? Are there any things that shouldn't be there? It calms down the anxiety a lot because then you know why you're going in, what's going to happen in there. It's not just, you know, hey, I'm going to be drugged and just knocked out and somebody's going to be messing around with my body and I don't quite know what's going to happen because that's what we usually think and how we operate on these ideas. So have conversations. YouTube is a wonderful resource where you can see so much and learn so much. And of course, get a lot of misinformation as well. But, you know, from the right doctors, you can find and and right educational people, you can find so much good information that is really helpful in calming down this anxiety and also learning more about your body, which is always great. Mm -hmm. No, you're so right, because I'm asking you these questions. And when I'm even thinking about getting a pap smear, my body, like I see it like a black hole. They're putting something in. I don't know what or where or how or why, how it's going to affect me, what's going to happen, all of that. And watching birth videos actually does help me. Ironically, it feels counterintuitive or like reverse psychology, but you'd think I wouldn't want to see any of that. But it's actually kind of the opposite, like seeing people go through it and like survive and breathe and be strong and, (laughs) you know, do something that. (laughs) you know our ancestors have done for millennia it does help absolutely it's just reassuring in human way we've done this for so long I'm sure this is going to be okay tell me more about your book I know we've totally digressed but (laughs) we'll get back to the sex stuff in a little bit (laughs) so the book is like a text version of my content it's a very detailed insight into you know how our bodies work what Organs are, you know, like the uterus, the scrotum, the testicles, 
how they work, basic stuff that everybody should know about them, you know, targeted towards like anybody 13 and up who just needs, who can have enough sort of readable experience to understand what I'm saying essentially and explaining contraception, explaining what are the different things that are available in the market these days for what you can do with your body and things like that. And it's like a really funny and, you know, easy breezy conversational kind of book. I can't believe I'm tooting my horn, own horn this way. <laughs> but today, you're hysterical and brilliant and deliver information in such a digestible way that's actually enjoyable. So please toot the fuck away. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. It's a short book. It's like a little over 200 pages. That is not a short book. <laughs> that's a whole <laughs> ass book. You wrote that. <laughs> but yeah it's just basic digestible stuff that everybody can use to understand their own bodies better and not get overwhelmed at their doctor's office or even you know at puberty or at different stages of life and help you understand and love your body better essentially <laughs> okay I need this book I'm getting this book for my sibling what's it called and you said that worldwide we can get it on ebook format that's so accessible I love that Yay. <laughs> so it's called the Dr. Cutris book. We didn't put a lot of uh, brain behind the name. <laughs> but... I mean, you speak for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> the Dr. Cutris book. Wonderful. And can we get that on like Amazon and bookstores and places like that? Yeah. So it's with Penguin, which means it's a global release. And you can all find it on Amazon and Kindle. And what are the other different... Uh, bookstores, Barnes and Nobles and all of that. I, I can't remember any of them now. <laughs> Isn't it so sad that Amazon has just taken over everything that we don't even remember? <laughs> Do you remember Borders? I don't know if you heard of Borders in the US, but that was before Barnes and Nobles. And that was the happiest place on earth besides the library, of course, where everything's extra accessible. But yes, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, Oliver Penguin. Oh my goodness. As somebody who just wrote their second book, first of all, big congratulations. That's no easy feat. I totally understand just the mental battle and like you said, work, life, everything and writing tends to take the back burner. But congratulations on writing that and I can't wait to get it. And I encourage all our listeners to get it too. The Dr. Cuteris book. Thank you so much and congratulations to you too. Thank you. So before we farewell, I want to do like a rapid fire about like sex and orgasms and that kind of stuff. So just throw it at me, like common misconceptions about orgasms, specifically for vulva owners. I particularly want to know about like, does penis size matter for achieving an orgasm? I hate saying it like that, but to get an orgasm, does it matter how big the object is? Can you talk to us about like we already talked about the tightness or looseness of a vagina, but I know some people struggle with, what is it called when it's like super small and everything feels painful? It's like vaginismus. Yes. Okay. I want to know about all the things. Okay. So let's do a top five. So number one, if you're not able to orgasm from penetration, that's entirely normal. That's very common for most people. Less than... 20 to 30 percent people say that they're able to have an orgasm from penetration if you're not able to orgasm from penetration that is actually the norm and you're not the outlier tip number two if you do want to have an orgasm the clitoris is where it's at for most people and when you're able to have an orgasm from penetration it's actually the indirect stimulation of the clitoris 
the female, I, I don't want to put it in like these kind of binary terms, but the female equivalent of a penis that way is the clitoris and not the vagina. They originate from the same tissue. If you give the clitoris enough testosterone, it, it grows into a penis. So that is the main tissue that you want to focus on for sexual pleasure. It's the little like pea-sized organ that's just on the top of your vulva. It's covered with a little hood, so you can kind of feel it. And stroking, rubbing, toys, all of these things work very wonderfully on it. Tip number three, you want to use a condom for whatever kind of sex you're having. Oral, anal, vaginal. Anal sex is a little bit more risky in terms of contracting STIs if you're going at it without a condom because the anus is not naturally as lubricated as the vagina is which means that you're more likely to injure yourself which means there's more likely to be cuts so you have to be extra extra careful please use a lubricant if you're having anal sex and always use a condom STIs spread through every mode of sexual contact even through touch which you obviously can't prevent but what you can prevent is condoms 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 Put it on the penis, put it on sex toys. Some people even put them on fingers. If you want to do that, sure, go ahead. Tip number four, if you're under the age of 26 in the US, please get vaccinated against HPV. You can also get vaccinated after the age of 26, but the US CDC recommendation is that you want to get it before 26 because the age of sexual exposure in the US is lower compared to other countries. So the HPV vaccine protects you from the HPV virus. It protects you from a couple of high-risk strains because HPV is a group of viruses. It's a family. And there's a couple of strains that are known for causing various kinds of cancers. For example, cancer of the cervix, which is almost in more than 90% cases related to HPV. Cancer of the back of the throat, cancer of the penis, cancer of the anus, cancer of the vulva, different parts of the body. So just one vaccine that can protect you from many different cancers and also warts, so genital warts. Tip number five, lube is your friend. If you're not able to relax or even if you're able to relax, what we usually go by is the wetter, the better. So lube reduces friction. It helps you enjoy sex more. It keeps things slippery so you're not accidentally injuring yourself and if sex is ever painful you want to see your doctor sex should not be painful and in order to prevent that pain from ever occurring lube is your friend go for it and bonus tip masturbation is not bad for you masturbation is really healthy and it's a great way of exploring your own sexuality and understanding your own body and there are no health disadvantages that I can really that you know masturbation can cause it's a great way of self-love and it's the only activity that will protect you from sexually transmitted infections so there's that yes amen to all of that i have three selfish questions for you one is oil okay instead of lube or like an oil-based lube an oil-based lube is okay or oil is also okay as long as you're not using a condom because the latex in the condom reacts with the oil and it can damage the condom. The other thing is that certain oils for a lot of people can throw off the pH of the vagina. Mm. So if you are looking for using an oil, I would recommend using an oil-based lubricant that comes with decent reviews, honestly. And do not use any random cooking oil and please don't use moisturizers and things like that. Yes, yes, yes. So, so important. First of all, I hate spit. Can we just stop 
as a society, can we just stop using spit as lubricant? First of all, it smells weird. It dries up. It's probably not healthy, right? Isn't it? Isn't there risks to that? Like, doesn't spit contain a lot of bacteria? Actually, so does the vagina. But the problem with using spit as a lubricant is that it dries up pretty quickly. So it's not enough. You can't keep like reapplying it. The second thing is that the kind of food you've eaten lately and if you haven't rinsed your mouth can affect your vagina and it can introduce, say, high sugar or things like that. So I wouldn't recommend using spit unless you're like in an absolute fix and you have nothing else. <laughs> Wait, did you see that Cardi B video where she was like, let me tell y'all something. When you use spit and then you suck a dick and then there's spit on it and then you have sex and you put that dick in your vagina, but you just had ribs, then all that ribs goes inside. <laughs> did you see that? I did not see that, but I would like to look at it now. I am going to send it to you because for a year straight, it was all I could ever reference to my boyfriend. It was actually becoming a problem. And till this day, we still, if we resort to using spit, we always say that. (laughs) I absolutely love that. (laughs) Yeah. Like we just had Thai curry last night and I was like, wow, I'm going to have Thai curry in my vagina if we use spit, you know? Okay, so selfish questions. HPV in the United States, do you happen to know if like HPV is a common recommendation by doctors? Because I believe I got that when I was a kid, although I'm not 100% sure. But either way, people should just check and make sure that they got it, right? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure on whether or not it's part of the national protocol or whatever. In the UK, it is. Mm -hmm. I don't know about the US. Okay, no worries. And another question, this is not sex related, but does not wearing a bra make your boobs saggy? Because I refuse to wear a bra. They're not comfortable. I don't like any of them. And I stumbled on one of your posts where you were busting this myth. Release the titties. (laughs) (laughs) No, wearing or not wearing a bra has no impact on how your boobs sag or don't sag. The thing is that breasts There's a lot of weight in them, you know, even if you have small breasts, you're essentially putting a bag of sand against a wall. Gravity is going to work and it is going to droop down and that's how all breasts function. Unless you have really small breasts, they are going to be droopy and that's normal and natural. Wearing or not wearing a bra has no impact on it. I know some people with larger breasts like to wear a bra simply because then they can put some space between the breast skin and the skin of the chest and the abdomen because otherwise it can get sweaty and icky down there. It's a personal choice. It's not going to impact your health or the perkiness of your boobs in any way. Yes, I love to hear that. And another question, hair removal, shaving, waxing, laser, like is one better than the other? Is having hair less clean or is not having hair more clean? Pubic hair is entirely natural and normal and it's there to protect you. In fact, we have lots of data to show that people who remove their pubic hair regularly get more UTIs and can get more STIs because, you know, pubic hair is there as a barrier. However, if you do want to keep it trim, you want to remove it entirely your choice, your body. Best option, trimming, because that helps you maintain the length that you want without unnecessarily working on your genital skin because the genital skin is thinner than the rest of the body. So waxing in particular, I'm not a huge fan of because it can be really harsh on the sensitive genital skin. And then shaving works for a lot of people is the most often used method. 
But because we're not taught the right technique of shaving, it often leads to ingrown hairs and bumps and cuts and infected boils. So I'm a big fan of trimming for everybody if you want to do anything to the length of your pubic hair. Yes. And the right technique of shaving, are you supposed to go like with the hair or like against the hair growth? With the hair, because when you're going against the hair, you're creating more friction, you're creating more irritation on your sensitive skin, and you're increasing the likelihood of ingrown hair. So just go in the direction of the hair growth and it won't give you the closest shave, but it's so much better for you. This is so helpful. One last selfish question. No questions are selfish. (laughs) Thank you. I'm just opening up about things I'm really curious about and hopefully some people will see themselves in this as well. But I'm wondering if using a vibrator, specifically like the clitoral stimulators, does that in any way, shape or form desensitize the clitoris? Like, is there such a thing as masturbating too much? Do you think that if you resort to masturbation, can that somehow inhibit the pleasure of sex with a partner, specifically like penetrative sex? Does that have any impact at all? Because I heard some rumors on the internet that got me a little bit worried. The most reliable place on earth. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but also where I found you. So yes. It's <laughs> a complex answer because for most people, orgasms don't happen from penetration anyway. So, you know, the idea is that if you're not having an orgasm from penetration anyway, you can very much use that vibrator with your partner or even use your hands. It can temporarily desensitize you because the vibrators that are coming in nowadays are so strong that the degree of vibrations they send your way can temporarily leave you numb for a bit, but that's only for like a five minutes or so. It's not going to impact your ability to have orgasms in the future in any way. But if you're using, you know, one of those very strong suction toys that can cause issues, it can cause blood clots, like superficial blood clots on the surface. So you want to just go easy, essentially, what I want to say. Don't use very high suction, don't use very high vibration. With all of that said, using a vibrator is not going to destroy your orgasming ability with a partner. Penetration does not lead to orgasm for most people anyway. And a vibrator is just like a supplement, essentially. This is kind of like saying that if you have iron supplements, your body will never be able to absorb iron from spinach. You know, it's just an additional thing. Yeah, yeah. I definitely see it as an enhancement, but I did have a feeling that some of the vibrators that I have are just a little too intense and I just keep it on the lowest setting, even though it takes a little bit longer. I don't feel as like, like you said, they're so intense. Sometimes yeah. you're like, oh my God, that was just like too much too fast. <laughs> oh. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Tanea, for sharing everything with us and answering all my personal questions. This was so incredibly helpful. We've covered a lot of ground and I'm so excited for everybody to get your book, which I'm sure goes even deeper into so many other different topics that we didn't get to today. So everybody, self-lovers, make sure that you get the Dr. Cuterus book. Thank you so much. And it was such a pleasure to be here. I had such a great time speaking with you. And thank you for the work you do. Oh, I appreciate that. Bye, everybody. 
One last thing before we farewell, my self-lovers. If you've been enjoying the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast, I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave a review on Apple or rate the show on Spotify. You can do this by searching for the show, Mary's Cup of Tea. Scroll all the way down on Apple Podcasts and you'll see stars where you can click one of the stars and leave a few kind words. It just means so much to me because I'm so behind the scenes when I'm podcasting, so I don't really get to see the impact of the show unless you leave a review. And on Spotify, there's just a button that says rate the show and it'll let you put however many stars you want. Your feedback helps the podcast grow. And as someone whose love language is words of affirmation, your kind words mean the world to me. Thank you so much for supporting the show and helping me spread the gift of self-love. I love you all so much and I will talk to you in next week's episode.